Welcome to this podcast, which is being sponsored by the Alcohol Exposed Pregnancy Programme at Greater Manchester ICB, where we'll be discussing fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, commonly shortened to FASD. Most children with FASD will have some degree of speech, language or communication need and a speech and language therapist or SLT may often be the first point of contact with the family. It's therefore vital that SLTs recognise the different presentations of language and communication associated with FASD and that appropriate referrals are made to the multidisciplinary team that can best support the family and the child's needs. This podcast will provide an overview of the various aspects of clinical presentation, as well as insight into the family's perspective of how the disorder impacts their lives and how SLTs may be able to support them. So let's start with some introductions. My name's Rachel Jackson. I'm a speech and language therapist with 25 years experience, and I have two adopted children, and we're in the very earliest stages of diagnosis. They have some physical signs of FASD, but we're no further along the line. But I have been to some coffee mornings associated with FASD, and I heard about very similar children to mine who have had diagnoses. Um, So I'm very interested to see how my journey develops. Morag, can I hand over to you? Yes, hi, I'm Morag Burns. I'm a speech and language therapist as well. I don't know if I want to confess how many years experience I have in the NHS. It's a very (laughs) long time. Uh, I have worked in often in autism assessment and diagnosis. And about 10 years ago, the Scottish government sponsored a Canadian FASD team to come and speak to multidisciplinary teams about FASD. And at that time, I really knew very little about the condition, but was just really, really surprised by how common it is. Apart from anything else, it it was a fact I had no idea about at that stage. And Sandy, you're here from the FASD organization. Yes, hi. I'm Sandy Butcher. I'm the chief executive of the National Organization for FASD. I am mum to a nearly 19-year-old uh, with FASD. And my husband and I, at the very beginning of this process, we once we had a diagnosis, we started a local group in Hertfordshire. So we've got experience working with local families and local structures And I'm also a co-admin on the FASD UK Facebook group, which supports nearly 3,700 families across the UK, and that's in cooperation with the FASD UK Alliance. Sandy, can we start with a little bit of an introduction to what is FASD and what we know about its occurrence? Absolutely. So fetal alcohol spectrum disorder results from alcohol-exposed pregnancies. Most people don't know that it affects approximately 2 to 4% of the population, at least. That's considered a conservative figure that comes from new studies that have been done. And there's certain populations who it affects more. So, for example, it affects approximately 27% of looked-after children. So it's something that's quite widespread. And it's not surprising that it's widespread because in the UK, approximately 40% of pregnancies are alcohol-exposed. That's not because anybody's trying intentionally to harm a child. It's because a lot of women don't understand the risks of alcohol in pregnancy. There's still a lot of confusion out there about the advice that's given, even though in 2016, the chief medical officers changed the advice to very clearly state that it's safest to avoid alcohol if you're pregnant or could become pregnant. 
And also a lot of women don't know that they're pregnant until later in the pregnancy. So there's just, and that's just, you know, the tip of the iceberg. There's, we could have a whole conversation all day long about why these rates are so high. But it is a hidden disability. Less than 10% of the people who have FASD have certain facial features. But a lot of people in the medical profession still are looking only for those facial features. They're not aware that there's been a big change in, in the diagnostic guidelines recently. It commonly occurs, co-occurs with other conditions. The studies show that there's something like 428 conditions that can co-occur. And quite often that includes ADHD or autism. So people, young people or adults might be misdiagnosed or they might have those conditions that can co-occur with FASD, but the FASD would be the cause in those cases. And it's important to know that because the how you'd work with people with FASD differs from how you'd work with people from other conditions. But exciting times, all the public health bodies have now recognized the importance of FASD, Department of Health, Sign in Scotland, NICE, what was Public Health England, now OHID. They're all saying that it's important that we recognize FASD, that we put in place the right supports because FASD is a lifelong condition. And I think all professions, including speech and language therapists, are going to start to see more and more young people who have the condition. So it's really exciting to be able to be here and to talk with and learn from your expertise as speech and language therapists. So with at least 2 to 4% of the population affected, can you tell us a little bit about how it does affect people? Everybody with FASD is affected differently, and they're often very confusing because they'll have what are called spiky profiles, where they might do really well in one area, but that might be masking how things are going in terms of how they're processing information that's coming in. On a very basic level, FASD can affect learning, vision and hearing, attention and impulse control, communication, social interaction. In fact, to get a diagnosis of FASD, you have to show severe impairment in at least three different areas, which I know we'll go into later. In terms of my son, and when it comes to speech and language sorts of issues, uh, he scores very, very low when it comes to what's called receptive language, and you all know about this better than I do. But basically, if you were to talk to him, he can talk the talk, and you might not understand just how little of what he's hearing he's understanding and processing. And another way that it really affects him is that he needs a lot of visuals. And he's been showing us this for years, long before we ever had the diagnosis. But we didn't really understand that when he would put up on the weekend a visual schedule that showed what he, we had to play school every morning on the weekends, which is a bit tiring, but I see now why we were doing it. Uh, but he put up those visuals so that he knew what to expect in the day. I, there's lots of things like that. But Rachel, I don't know, uh, how does this affect your children? It definitely affects their attention and listening. They've got poor judgment skills. They do have sleep problems. And I think it's important to highlight that because I think my children's sleep problems exacerbate their other difficulties because when they're tired, they underperform anyway. Poor memory, poor educational attainment. My daughter especially was misunderstood in school. We definitely couldn't put our finger on what was wrong. I hadn't heard of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder especially when she was younger. And 
a lot of her behaviour was masked, but she came across as quirky or a little bit different. And there was definitely something, but we couldn't quite identify what. She was diagnosed with executive functioning disorder by an educational psychologist. But there was just lots going on, educational attainment, attention and listening, lots of avoidance strategies. And then I became involved more with school when she was coming to transition into secondary school because I think primary schools are really good at masking or making up for differences whereas when they go to secondary the differences really become apparent and then there's a risk of mental health problems and school refusal so I became actively involved in the transition process and my daughter's actually in a special independent school just to make sure that her vulnerabilities and her needs are met. And I think the important thing about FASD is that because the fetus as it's developing throughout the pregnancy is very vulnerable to alcohol exposure, depending on what's developing at what time throughout the pregnancy, that's why, and a whole bunch of other reasons and and influences can affect how the, the alcohol affects the fetus. It's very complicated. But at the end of the day, we're talking about that the brain was damaged as the fetus was developing, and that can occur throughout the pregnancy. So quite often, people don't realize that FASD is itself a brain-based disability. Lots of other things can be affected, and in my son's case, he also has the way his bones developed. He's got fused vertebrae and fused ribs and a hand that didn't develop properly. There's all kinds of other medical conditions as well that can come along with it. But at the end of the day, if someone's not able to process incoming information and and understand what's happening, that affects every aspect of their life. That's why I think speech and language therapists knowing about this are just so critical because quite often they're among the first involved. I know for our son, he first had a speech and language therapist involved when he was about 17 months old, and then that continued all the way through his secondary school. So it's really important. We know that the proportion of children with FASD who have the language impairment in speech and language and communication challenges is around 85%. So what would you both, as speech and language therapists, say that your colleagues need to know about FASD? So I think what's interesting is the profile of the population. You mentioned, Sandy, now that although your son is quite outgoing and chatty at times, he still really struggles to process information. And that's quite common, isn't it, that... um, a child or a young person or adult who is affected by FASD can appear to be quite good at making social overtures towards other people, can seem quite motivated to have interaction, and that can really hide just the extent of difficulties that they may be having with, you know, even day-to-day conversation. So I think as speech and language therapists, yes, we need to know that they're highly at risk of having language difficulties, but that their profile might be a little bit different from some of the other young people. I say young people because I work in children's services, but some of the other people who we um, come across. So seemingly maybe quite worldly wise or quite, you know, street wise is a bit of a mask and often underlying that are really quite significant receptive language difficulties. So being aware that somebody who can talk fluently may not be understanding is something that's, I think, critical for us to know. However, you also said your son first met a speech and language therapist when he was 17 months. So often these children come to us anyway, whether anybody's ever mentioned FASD or thought about FASD or not. So we're going to be seeing these children and we have been seeing these children in our 
paediatric services all along. It's just that perhaps we haven't been quite so aware of the underlying cause of their communication challenges. The other thing I suppose that is really important to recognise is the gap tends to widen with age. So Rachel, you were saying that, you know, your daughter got along at primary school and primary schools are really, really good at supporting young people and they're in the same class and things are quite predictable. But as their peers develop more sophisticated communication, when you think of sort of midway through primary to upper primary, it all ramps up. You know, people start using sarcasm, we start using metaphors and all these things go over the heads of people who are having receptive language difficulties anyway. So the gap tends to widen. And I think it's really important that we recognise that and we're able to continue to help around time of transitions and to reassess when that request comes through. Another thing that I have learned about on my journey about learning about FASD is how common it is for people who have FASD to confabulate. So confabulation isn't the same as lying. It's when somebody gives an account that seems unlikely to be accurate. So quite often when somebody's asked to tell about their school day or about an experience, it can seem as if they're making it up or as if they're exaggerating. And I think, again, that comes down to the fact that this is a brain-based disorder. Confabulation isn't unique to FASD. It happens in, in other people who have you know, frontal lobe issues like dementia, um, where people try to fill, almost try to fill in the gaps in their memory by, by saying things that they've maybe heard elsewhere or that they, they think the, the listener wants to hear or that they think is probable. And I think sometimes they get into trouble for telling lies when in actual fact it's confabulating. So that's certainly something I've been really interested to learn about. Is that something that you've seen in your family members at all? A little bit in my daughter, yeah. I can't say significantly, but sometimes I think, mm, I'm not getting the truth here, but I'm I'm not getting a lie. It's something going on, but I'm not quite sure what. <laughs> Some of the best advice I was ever given was to just not ask questions you already know the answer to. And it's for this very reason. Sometimes we set kids up who aren't able to completely... Uh, express themselves and we start asking them a load of questions that they just simply can't answer. And I think that's when some of the confabulation starts to happen. One of my favorite stories came through, uh, well, I've heard it from another family, but a school contacted home on a Monday and said, well, I think we know the answer to this, but I just have to double check. Did you go to Argentina over the weekend? Because your child is absolutely convinced that you did. And I just say that example because, of course, they hadn't gone to Argentina over the weekend, but these things can imprint as being quite real to the people. And it's cute when you talk about something like that, but it's not so cute when that young person gets older and might get into trouble with criminal justice system and doesn't have the right kind of support when they're in those interviews and maybe things haven't, their file hasn't, you know, highlighted how vulnerable they are in this respect. There's a lot of reasons why understanding the communications and, and speech and language challenges that somebody might have is really important for them as they grow older. All of this comes back to identifying that a young person has FASD. And that's something that in the UK we've been particularly not great at up to now. But there have been changes that have happened, as I mentioned, in terms of the public health bodies recognizing the importance of it. And one of them is that there's now a nice quality standard on FASD. I was really privileged to have been a layperson on the nice quality standard committee. 
And I have to say that when this quality standard came out, it went further than I ever thought it might. And if people don't know what a quality standard is, it's the next step above guidance. So when there's a nice quality standard in England and Wales, all of the local areas have to report and have, quote unquote, have regard for this nice quality standard. So it's really a pretty big deal. And this is what's going to then mean that throughout the system, we're going to start seeing more and more young people with FASD. In Scotland, you've been leading the way. You're, you've, the nice quality standard is based on work that was done in Scotland with what's called the SIGN 156 guideline that's now in effect all across Scotland, England, and Wales. But in the nice quality standard, I'm going to read here, it says that children and young people with probable prenatal alcohol exposure and significant physical, developmental, or behavioral difficulties should be referred for assessment and those who have confirmed prenatal alcohol exposure or all three facial features associated with prenatal alcohol exposure should have a neurodevelopmental assessment if there are clinical concerns. That's music to a parent's ears. Unfortunately, not all the services are yet ramped up for it, and that's changing. But Mirag, what do we need to know, and especially what do speech and language therapists need to know about how this affects them? I think you've hit the nail on the head when you say it's a neurodevelopmental assessment. And I think that's something that has been happening at the same time as we've been developing these clinical guidance. Um, the, the NICE standard is based, as you said, on the Scottish Sign Guide 156, which in turn was based on Canadian guidance. So we're all learning across the world about this condition. And what every speech and language therapist needs to know is that the assessment is a multidisciplinary one. We're not going to be asked to make a decision on our own. It's something that we'll contribute to. And we have those skills to contribute to a range of neurodevelopmental assessments using our clinical skills. Um, but to meet the threshold for a diagnosis, I think therapists might not know that the assessment occurs across a number of different domains or areas of assessment. So those include, as you said, impairment in at least three of those domains. And the domains include things like memory and attention, cognitive ability, they include language, they include motor skills, they include communication. So we will be asked to contribute to that assessment. So primarily the language domain and the adaptive and social skills and social behaviour domain we can contribute to. However, we'll have other observations. So if, if you meet a young person or an adult in a clinic and you're assessing them and you notice that their attention, they struggle to maintain their attention for short periods of time, that's useful information you can contribute. All of those domains or areas of assessment tend to overlap a bit anyway. You can't really talk about somebody's language in isolation because it's going to affect their cognitive ability and their ability to, to manage on a day-to-day -day basis. But it's for the purpose of formulation or coding to sort of ensure that there is sufficient evidence to, to see whether somebody meets the criteria or not. But as I say, speech and language therapists, I think, sometimes worry about their contribution and about seeing whether they can contribute. We can, you know, we're experts in communication and what we can do is be part of the multidisciplinary team. It will probably be coordinated by a paediatrician if it's a young child. It may be coordinated by a CAMS team if it's a slightly older child or in adult services. I'm less familiar, but certainly in Scotland, any neurodevelopmental conditions where people are seeking a diagnosis as adults, it's coordinated through mental health services. So I think teams aren't quite established in some of the neurodevelopmental pathways and there's a lot of change going on. But I think as long as speech and language therapists know that they'll contribute with their area of clinical expertise, that they're not being asked to do this in isolation, I think those are some of the main things. And then in terms of thinking about what we would do 
in assessment. So the diagnostic criteria talk about significant impairment in a domain. And I think we as therapists have, you know, we've moved away from talking about a deficit model in a lot of our work. And I think this can feel a little bit conflicting, but I think it's important to say if we don't recognise what somebody's difficulties are, it can be hard for them to get access to the kind of support they need. So we do in this case talk a little bit more about some of the challenges that a young person's having. The best kind of evidence is when we can say, well actually we've managed to administer some standardised assessment and in the sign guidance we talked about using direct assessment where possible. So direct assessment might be something like the KELF, which most speech and language therapists would be familiar with. However, I, I temper that with saying the, the, the same guideline talks about a combination of direct and indirect assessments because there's an acknowledgement that sometimes it's not possible to conduct a, a direct assessment using standardised tools for various reasons. I've certainly been in a situation where I've tried to administer a couple of uh, subtests from a health and realised quite quickly that the young person didn't have the attention control to manage something like that. Um, Conversely, I've rattled through an assessment with a young person who very confidently was saying everything was really easy when in actual fact she reached the ceiling quite quickly. So I was able to get that information quite easily without distressing her. I would never subject a young person to an assessment where they recognised that they were struggling to say, OK, well, we, we've reached the ceiling on this subtest and we're going to do another subtest and another subtest. So I think, again, we use our clinical judgment about what is practical. Standardised assessments have their uses, but indirect assessment in the form of parental questionnaires can be really useful as well in the form of classroom observations. And then it comes down to seeing whether somebody has a significant difficulty or not. And if you've not got those standardised assessments, it's your clinical judgment and examples of where on a daily basis that is causing impact that can help you reach those conclusions. Rachel, you're at an early stage in your journey of seeking assessment and diagnosis. And, and Sandy, it's it's a few years for you. What about your experience of getting information about your children's communication ability? Did it follow that at all? I appreciate very much what you're saying about how we all want to focus on the strengths of the people, and I guess in your case that you're supporting, or, or our loved ones. That has to be the starting point for anything that we do. And that's really important. And as a parent, it is really hard and sometimes very bittersweet to see when these test scores come back and they show in a very direct way where your loved one might be struggling. And that certainly was the case with our son. And after he was adopted at 16 months, he had all kinds of every kind of speech and language therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy. You know, we were first in the States at the time where we had access to maybe more of these sorts of things than might have happened here at that age. But then all through his growing up, he had lots of therapists involved and all of these assessments add up. So I think the first thing I'd like to say about that is even if as a speech and language therapist, you don't know whether or not this young person it was an alcohol-exposed pregnancy and you don't know where this diagnosis might be leading. All of those sorts of comments that you note over time can contribute later to an FASD diagnosis. That's certainly what happened in our son's case and gave valuable information to us along the way. But also just remembering that the life of, of a lot of people with FASD becomes very medicalized. You know, our son got a little weary and tired of having all these assessments. So there's a time, I don't know, he must have been in maybe year two, 
And it was a speech and language therapist trying to get him to put something in, on, or under. And he was just not doing any of it. And she was convinced, and I'm trying to be quiet and let the professional do her job, but, you know, she's trying to get him to do sign language and all of this stuff. And I thought, oh, and I said, I'm really sorry, I have to interrupt you here because you're not getting the full picture. And I looked at my son and I said, look, can you just put that in there? It's time to just put it in there. And he did. I said, can you put it on there? And he did. I said, can you put it under? And he did. And We've had other instances like that where people doing the assessments didn't understand what they were seeing. Another time, it was an educational, a different educational psychologist came back and she showed me the scribble on a piece of paper. And she said, well, I'm sorry, but this is all he did. He was meant to be outside looking at wildlife and he just laid down on the ground and rolled around. And then I looked at my son and I said, well, what were you doing? I said, oh, mommy, I was looking for ants on the ground. And I said, do you remember what the ant had? How did, what did the ant look like? And then he drew the body of an ant and he labeled it. So we went from somebody looking at him thinking he was incapable of paying any attention to actually he was trying to do what they said to do. And he just needed a little bit of scaffolding to remember the steps that she wanted him to fill out. So those are two examples from assessments. But now that he's transitioning into adulthood, it's incredibly important that we have this stuff all documented and it's not buried in records. It's all there in a way that can be accessed because this is, and that he understands what these assessments say so that he can become a self-advocate as well. So that's, uh, you know, some examples from my, but Rachel, I'm sure that you have other sorts of things like that that have happened with your family. Well, uh, as I say, I'm early on in the diagnosis process and it hasn't been a priority for a while because I was thinking what difference is it going to make if I go to somebody and say my children have got FASD nobody's going to know what I'm talking about in terms of schooling I'm lucky that I'm a parent and a professional so I was able to facilitate that they got what they needed and bang my drum and stamp my feet make sure that they got what they needed at school speech therapists assessed my daughter and then set a program and discharged her and I'm a speech therapist, so I can kind of keep an eye on that, although I'm I'm not the professional who can do that as a mum, but we kept it ticking over. And until this new pathway came out and the NICE guidance came out, I was very much, what will it bring to the table apart from another label? We'll do it one day, we'll do it one day. And now the guidance has just brought it to the fore, and, I, and now I'm going to push and hope that things come into place in Greater Manchester I know there's a lot of exciting things going on that we'll talk about later but I've recognised it is now important because people should know what it is and the children should get the support and it is lifelong and I'm really excited to see what this brings me and my family and how we travel down the path. I must say that I would find it difficult to talk to other professionals about alcohol in pregnancy and as a professional, I'd find it as a speech therapist, I think, difficult to bring that subject up. Have you got any guidance, Morag, about how to respond when a parent shares that concern or how to, if you've got an inkling there's something going on, may wonder if it's FASD, how to kind of broach the subject? 
I think that's a really important topic to raise. We want clinicians to feel confident that they do know the route to assessment. So if, for example, a parent said, I'm a bit worried that there was alcohol in my pregnancy and I'm wondering whether that might have affected my young person, that clinicians should know how to respond to that. Um, A lot of it comes down to confidence and experience. So People need to know not to be judgmental in any way whatsoever and to be warm. And I think the better a relationship you have with somebody, the more likely they are to have those honest kind of conversations. Speech and language therapists wouldn't specifically usually ask about alcohol or cigarette or drug use in pregnancy. So it's not something that that perhaps people feel very confident about. But if somebody did raise it, I think the important thing to do is to reassure them and say, thanks very much for sharing that with me gosh, it's so common. Let's just think about what to do next. So just respond warmly and reassuringly. I think those are the important things to remember to do and to kind of know where to take that. So it's important to record it because somebody has shared that information with you. So if it's recorded, then that may be good supportive evidence when people are trying to collate that about an alcohol history. And then I think it's also important to know what to do with that information. So As I said at the start, it's a multidisciplinary assessment. It's not something that one should be sitting on and thinking, I don't know where to take this. Um, We really need to know where to go. And that's something that in Manchester, the pathways are part of what's being worked on at the moment. So often, again, if it's a young person, one might say there are lots of reasons why people have developmental difficulties. And what we'll be looking at now is kind of teasing out what they are. And and sometimes we can find an underlying cause and sometimes we can't. But but maybe the first step would be referral to a community paediatrician. So that might be the, the way that that conversation would go. I think it's probably far more likely that alcohol isn't raised as an issue. And a therapist might be thinking, well, I suppose it's possible, but I'm not very confident about raising that as an issue. I think then if you're meeting a family and you don't know them well, you're not going to get into really in-depth conversations about those kinds of things in, in the very first appointment that you see them. But I think, as I say, if you develop a relationship with a family, it may be something that came up, but it's more likely that you might just begin to sow a seed. So you might be saying to a family, um, well, this is what I'm seeing today. So I'm recognising that, you know, your young boy is a, a chatty little whirlwind. He's come into the clinic. We've had lots of fun, but I can see he's finding some of these things difficult. So what we need to look at is how we support him. And it's also useful to think about perhaps whether we can find out what's going on. So again, I would be saying, you know, there can be underlying causes and, and what we would be looking at is bringing in other professionals to help with that assessment. So I don't think speech and language therapists need to feel it's their job to get an alcohol history unless somebody started talking to them, in which case then yes, aha, uh-huh, have that conversation, just just be led. Again, it comes down to your clinical judgment and your experience and your relationship with somebody. I have probably found it more common for families who have looked after children to say this is something we're thinking about. And that's perhaps a little bit of an easier conversation for them to have than um, for birth mothers. But, you know, I think as people's awareness is raised, I think, you know, when we did the training, the Canadian team talked about the fact that families were far more aware of it and would come in far more informed. And that perhaps is something that'll change in the UK now as well. I I think that's true. And certainly in our experience at the National Organisation for FASD, we hear all the time that all families, including birth families, just want to know how best to support their loved ones to live their best life. And I think as a society, as we become 
more and more comfortable with bringing FASD into the sunlight. And as I've said, all the major public health bodies are now urging that this happen. Uh, so moving forward, it's going to be different than it has been up to this point. I think these conversations will become easier and more a part of the social fabric because the other part of the NICE quality standard that we haven't talked about is the first two standards are all about how pregnant women are going to have additional discussions about the risks of alcohol and pregnancy and how that's noted. So it's as we move forward, the hope and intention is that this conversation should become easier to have without any kind of stigma attached to it. I mean, this is the professionals talk all the time with pregnant women and others about what the risks of various sorts of exposures during pregnancy might be. I know as an older mom, nobody hesitated to talk with me about what some of the other risks were. So it will change over time. And as you say, it's just so important. Information's power. And if as a professional, you've learned that this was an alcohol-exposed pregnancy, contributing that to the notes will help that child potentially get the diagnosis and support that they need and deserve. Okay, so Sandy, one of the recommendations in the quality standard is a management plan. I know you think this is possibly the most important bit, so can you tell me the purpose of the management plan? Yeah, when I said that the outcome was more than I'd ever expected, certainly this is one area. The NICE quality standard has one section that deals with the need for a care management plan for people who have FASD. And this care management plan is meant to include across services. It's meant to be reassessed when there are key stages, maybe transitioning into adulthood or even into secondary school. It's meant to be a comprehensive support because the whole point of the diagnosis is to ensure that people can live their best lives and they get the right kind of support. So it's a great could be a great move forward. At the moment, however, there's great confusion out there about what this is meant to look like and who's responsible for it. The Scottish Sign Guidelines, it has a sample care management plan. We're hearing from families that maybe that could be improved. It's a bit medicalized and we want something that's more comprehensive to and accessible to the person with FASD themselves. But I'm excited to be working with a group of colleagues in the FASD UK Alliance. This is a coalition, informal coalition of all the groups working on FASD across the UK. And this year we're working on coming up with a sample care management plan based on best practice. And we invite all out there, including speech and language therapists, to help us look for a way forward. Because as I said, it's with my son now becoming an adult, I can see how easily people can fall through the cracks. And it's all of our job collectively to make sure that they're not. So I would say for speech and language therapists, as you contribute to a care management plan, the idea would be to highlight what kind of ongoing support you think this person might need and to also work with the families. We haven't really talked about the role of ongoing therapy with speech and language therapists, which for our son was very important. And I know things have maybe changed since he was going through and the kind of year after year after year therapy that he had isn't necessarily available. But boy, I wish it were because I can say for sure it made a difference. You've got a young person who's just not able to explain themselves. They need the words. They need to understand how to calm down and how to formulate what they're trying to say. They need to say it's okay to stop 
somebody if they're talking too much and you, my son will say, my brain can't handle that. And it's a signal that we all need to slow down and we need to help ensure he's understanding what's being said. So I think hopefully speech and language therapists will be invited to contribute to care management plans. And at this point, I think the families are maybe even a little further ahead than the official bodies are in calling for these now that they see it's in the nice quality standard. So we all have to assume goodwill, but understand those families, we're fighting for our kids' lives. Literally, we're fighting for our kids' lives because if they don't get the right kind of support and help in place, it can be a really desperate world for young people, especially as they transition into adulthood. And some of the things that speech and language therapists might contribute to that care management plan are, again, some of the things that you've described your family members finding challenging. So the ability to process language, I think speech and language therapists can give lots of really good information about what developmentally appropriate supports those would be for that person at that time. And that is something obviously that evolves and changes over time. But just recognising this is how much you might have to simplify language if you're communicating with this person. So given examples of what developmentally appropriate language to use with that person would be, and also language either to to avoid using or to explain if you do use it. So some of the higher order language stuff like metaphors, like sarcasm, don't presume that somebody's going to understand it. So is it appropriate to use? And if so, check that the person understood. I think you've also said about the amount of time that your people need to process language. We don't like silence, do we, as adults? And we think (laughs) we're helping. If somebody doesn't understand or looks a bit puzzled, that we'll reframe our language or we'll repeat. And so, you know, that kind of guidance that we can be saying, first of all, simplify your language. And second of all, give them time to process. And that could be a really, really long way and far more comfortable than we're used to having. But sometimes people do need that time just to process information and reframing it and keeping talking isn't helping when we think we're helping, but we're not. It is amazing as a mum how long you can wait. Yeah. Uh Uh And if you do wait, something comes out and you just think, I've waited too long. I've made them feel uncomfortable. They've forgotten what I was asking them. They're probably thinking about what's for tea and then they come out with an answer and you think, wow, I'm really glad I waited that long. It can take 30 seconds. At least sometimes. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And then just to, if you do feel the need to give them a prompt to say it exactly the way you said it before, because if you change what you're saying, it's going to confuse them and they'll have to start that processing all over again. Or the other thing is just to say what you want them to do, not what you don't want them to do. I've heard it said that people with FASD sometimes, especially if they're escalated, are only hearing every third word. So if you're saying don't run in a crisis kind of situation, they might only hear run, where if you say let's walk and then just keep repeating that casually and calmly and quietly. Uh, Yeah, there's all kinds of things like that that can help. And I see, Rachel, you're, you're smiling because it's when you see that you're doing something that actually works, it's like a light bulb moment as a parent, but it's against some of what we're taught in terms of traditional parenting. So this is another reason why knowing about FASD is incredibly important. I'm smiling as a mum and as a speech therapist because some of the information for a speech therapist is second nature, but it's sometimes so second nature that we might forget or overlook explaining it in enough detail to the professionals and the families around the children. 
So yes, we do need to have processing time. We know we need to have processing time, but have we made that really explicit to the people around the child? And to the child and to the person with FASD, they have to understand yeah, themselves. Yeah. So in our house, we used to have, we used to say anybody could say, take five. And whenever anybody in the family did that, we all had to be quiet. And I would count very slowly the five seconds. It should have been more. I see that now. But just, you, we also have to empower the people themselves to understand what their needs are and to give them words. Because I think that was part of what also came out for for us with speech and language was just understanding that sometimes what my son needed was literally the words to use in a situation and to practice those ahead of time when he wasn't in a tense situation. And especially when he was still in a mainstream setting, that was incredibly important that we had the input from the speech and language therapist. We had the people, the Senko and others in the school all understanding that he needed support on how to, he had a chat club, a Lego chat club that he went to. There are lots of things that can be done to help them practice and get used to expressing themselves better. It reminds me of my daughter. She has got a speech therapist now. She's in her independent school and the speech therapist sent me a lovely report and said, we've noticed your daughter finds it difficult to ask for help or recognize when she's finding things difficult. So we've given her some cards to use. She's going to the toilet a lot and we think this is because it's at the times when she's struggling. So we've given her some cards to use and she'll use the cards and everything will get better. And I thought, great, fantastic. And in the next chat to her TA, the TA didn't know about the cards. So then when she came home from school, I asked her about the cards and she said, oh yeah, yeah, the speech therapist gave me the cards. And I said, well, where are they? And she said, they're in my bag. And I said, well, do you ever get them out and put them on your desk? And she went, oh, no, no, no. I said, do you know what to do with the cards? No, 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 no. <laughs> so we really need to be explicit because even in our clinic room, the child might show us that they can use the strategies and they might use the strategies in the clinic room, but the generalization just isn't there. And if the person around them doesn't know if the young person or, or the person's using them effectively in clinic, they need so much help to generalize that in every situation. I suppose that's the importance of the management plan as well, though, isn't it? That everybody should know what strategies are required. So it shouldn't be a document that's sitting in somebody's file. It should be something almost that, you know, like a communication passport that they carry around with them and say, these are the accommodations that I need. This is how I learn. So things like visual supports, those developmentally appropriate visual supports, if it's a series of pictures for your daughter that's appropriate, that everybody knows what purpose they have um, and how she uses them and visual supports. Yes, it seems quite an obvious thing to speech and language therapists, but it's not to everybody. And it's also important to think about getting them at the right developmental level. They're really, really useful, but it's not useful to have a really lengthy timeline, for example, for somebody who's just at the kind of now and next stage. So having those visual supports Thinking about when and how to use them. Are they there to help with understanding? Might they be a way of expressing or asking for help and making it explicit? Because they might, you don't just provide them and then forget about them. You have to prompt the person to use them. That's something that National FASD, in cooperation with Seashell, actually, which is a wonderful organization in Manchester, we had some funding during COVID from the Department of Health and Social Care to create the Me and My FASD Toolkit. And as a result of the consultation with people with FASD and their families, we've created uh, FASD-specific resources that help, visuals that help. So one of them is a Break It Down board that helps. Uh, we know schools are using these in, in addition to families to help break down a 
what worked well in a situation, because it's as important that we talk about what went well as when something didn't go so well. We also have calming cards. Uh, we have a website, FASD.me, which has on it an interactive comic. And these are all visual tools to help young people with FASD and their families break down what some, and there's a heavy emphasis on speech and communication kind of needs as well as part of that. So I think as things move forward, there's a lot of change, but there's speech and language therapists, you have quite a toolkit. What other sorts of things can you do to help? Well, I was also thinking about the voice of the affected person. So, you know, you were saying how important it was for parents to be able to contribute to an assessment. I think absolutely, you know, what somebody does in a clinic room isn't what they do on a day-to-day basis and may not be representative if they didn't sleep that night or anything. So the, the management plan should have the voice of the parent, but should also have the voice of the person. Absolutely. So people who have FASD often have lots of real positive strengths you know that quite often that they might be quite a sporty person or they might you know have a great sense of humor or be really outgoing and funny so we need to have a profile that's not all based on the things that they're finding difficult but on their strengths and interests as well we we all function much better if our strengths and interests are included so again getting the voice of that person we have to be able to do so in a developmentally appropriate way and I think the danger is that people say, oh, well, you know, they have communication difficulties, so we can't get that information from them. So I think speech and language therapists can help think about how we get the voice of the young person. You know, again, using visual supports like talking mats, they're quite a nice way of having a conversation with somebody who's maybe still finding things difficult to express without prompts or to express verbally. So getting that young person's voice, I think, is really important as well. And your me and my FASD toolkit, that's great. I also like comic strip conversations and those are the same kind of thing where you can have a conversation using some visuals just to kind of go, wow, that went really well. And I love the fact that you can put things in speech bubbles and help somebody think about what other people's perspective might be, because that's really hard for people with that thinking and learning style to think about. I might have done something that affected how my mum felt because I did something really well today that might have made her feel good too or Maybe the reason why that person doesn't want to play with me in the playground is because we had to fight over a football the other day. And so helping them see things from other people's perspective using some of these resources can be really helpful too. I'd like to say too on the FASD.me website, so if you're a speech and language therapist working with somebody who does have FASD, there's a whole section on there of coping resources that are designed specifically to be done in cooperation with a trusted adult like a speech and language therapist to help break down. There's a passport on there. There's uh, things to help them visualize how they're feeling that day using emojis or emotion thermometer, all kinds of things. But what's important is they're branded with FASD because a lot of times kids with FASD haven't met somebody else with FASD. They don't know that there are others out there. And this just, when a professional uses, that's a whole reason why we've designed this. They're all expert reviewed. This isn't something that we've just done without input. We have an experts committee who advises on them. Uh, But check out those coping resources. And also there's a Living FASD magazine now so that kids can see positive peer role models talking about coping strategies. And when it comes to other conditions, therapists use quite a lot of other sorts of supports. And this is just something that for the first time, kids with FASD can understand that they're not alone. And that helps in all kinds of ways to helping them to find ways forward as a person with FASD, understanding that there are strategies that can help them and they can and do achieve. 
I think that's really helpful to signpost to people some of the resources that do exist. I would imagine if there are speech language therapists listening to this podcast thinking I'd like to find out a bit more, that there are other things that we could perhaps highlight to them. For practitioners, the National FASD website has a lot of information specifically about what FASD is, how it's diagnosed, a kind of summary of some of what we've been talking about here. There's information about the NICE quality standard and the sign guideline. All of that's on there. That's nationalfasd.org.uk. There's also, and this is really very important, as I mentioned, the FASD UK Alliance is a coalition of groups all across the UK. And that would be my first port of call if you were looking to contact local families or local experts, that website is fasd-uk.net. So those are two places to go for additional information. Morag, I know you've been very involved uh, in Scotland. The FAST team that you can maybe explain more about in Rachel in Greater Manchester, there's all kinds of things going on. Yeah, Morag, do you want to go first? So yeah, I just briefly wanted to mention the FAST team, which is yet another acronym, but it stands for the Fetal Alcohol Advisory Support and Training Service, and it's hosted at Edinburgh University. And they are now running professional courses, a range of professional courses, which are multidisciplinary. So uh, the current one, for example, I popped into one of the seminars there, uh, and it was really encouraging to see that there were community paediatricians, speech and language therapists, psychologists, OTs involved, and they were representing health boards from all over the UK, actually, and also uh, one person from mainland Europe. So that's for people who are wanting to be part of the assessment and diagnosis service and feel that they'd really like to to learn a lot more. That's a, a looking like a good source of information, too. And it's a really hot topic in Greater Manchester at the moment. Um, Two good places to start for more information here are FASD Greater Manchester and also the Greater Manchester FASD Network. And if I could also add, if anybody wants further training, because we can't cover everything in one session, uh, National FASD has trainings. We do some of them in cooperation with Seashell. We also do bespoke trainings. We've done training specifically for speech and language therapists. Uh, We also have e-learning that was sponsored by the Greater Manchester, what was then Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. There's lots of information out there. And if this in some way has tweaked somebody's interest to go and look a little bit more, do a little bit more, that's the whole point of this. You know, I've always said that I will forgive any professional out there who doesn't know about FASD the first time they encounter my child. I will never forgive them if they don't do some more background and research the second time because we wouldn't ignore any other condition. Every major public health body is now saying this is important. This needs to be recognized. This needs to be diagnosed. It needs to be supported across the lifespan. And you all as a community of therapists have so much to offer to families and to people who truly, truly need to be understood so I'm excited to be here with you all and hats off to everybody. You wouldn't be in the field that you're in if you didn't care about creating those brighter futures. So we stand ready at National FASD to help in any way we can. I think that's a great place to finish. Thank you, Sandy. I'd just like to say on behalf of the Alcohol Exposed Pregnancy Programme at Greater Manchester and the Greater Manchester ICB, thank you very much for doing this podcast with me today Morag and Sandy and thank you to everyone for listening thank you thank you